There have been 21 ecumenical councils in the history of the Catholic Church. Most recently, we had Vatican II, which is a source in some places of much controversy. Today, Bishop Frank is going to walk us through the story of Vatican II, um, the background, the history, and uh, some important points for all of us. So stay tuned for this important conversation and keep your radio right here at 1350 AM and 103.9 FM or keep us on the phone with the Veritas mobile app. And you can get the app at the Apple App Store, the Google Play Store, or at VeritasCatholic.com. Let Me Be Frank is brought to you by a grant from Foundations in Faith. Starting on February 15th, pastors and ministry leaders in the Diocese of Bridgeport are invited to apply for program support grants with the St. John Paul II Fund for Religious Education and Faith Formation. With a focus on youth engagement and innovative approaches, the JP2 Fund has funded diverse programs, typically running from September to June. Pastors and ministry leaders in the Diocese of Bridgeport can apply for up to $10,000 in support of religious education and faith formation programs. The application window runs from Wednesday, February 15th to Friday, March 31st. To apply, go online to foundationsinfaith.org. Okay, here we go. This is Let Me Be Frank on the Veritas Catholic Network. I'm Steve Lee, and as always, it is my great pleasure to introduce Bishop Frank Caggiano. Steve, it's always good to see you, my friend. And today we're going to talk about something we have talked about, well, we being in our normal conversations in yes. the church. We've talked about it for 50 years. But I wonder to myself if, we, if, if people really knew the background of the Second Vatican Council and what it actually did. Besides asking the question, how many people have read the documents that came out of the council, which is holding the right. story? So I thought we could dabble a bit about this and chat a bit. What do you think? I think that's a great idea. I mean, this is such an important thing because it is a huge and monumental event for our church. Mm -hmm. And I mm -hmm. mean, we only have so many ecumenical councils that we've ever had in the history of the church. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I feel like maybe because we're so close to it, Vatican II is so not well understood by many different parts <laughs> it, yeah it well that's part of the reason why i thought it would be a good idea for us awesome. to do this because i also think what's quite interesting is that a lot of the tensions we have 50 years later were the exact tensions that existed at the council mm. right and it was the leadership of saint john the 23rd and saint paul the sixth that kind of moved the council in a certain direction but in the end with the 2,200 bishops who are present, can you imagine? Uh, I think 90, the lowest majority the documents had for approval was 90% of the bishops present, right? So it, it's there was consensus when all was said and done, yes. right? Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. Okay. All right. So... Um, it, it, Let's take a step back, right? For example, the Second Vatican Council was actually called a few months before I was born. I must have been the inspiration <laughs> from, from 19, right? So it was 1959, it was called. Uh, 
The preparation went on from 1959 to 1962, and the council was held from 1962 to 1965. It was started by St. John Twenty-Third, who died in 1963 after the first of four sessions from stomach cancer. So the jolly old, you know, Il Papa Buono, the good yes. Pope, John had emaciated almost into nothing when he died. Wow. Right? And he had not really, um, well, again, it was a different age. Uh, you know, nowadays, there may have been more treatment for him, but in those days, no. So, And then Paul VI came, and as we spoke about Paul VI in, in other podcasts, um, he, was, he was a quintessential diplomat and an archbishop, and he tried desperately to hold the unity of the council together because there were basically two camps. There was what I'm going to call the curialist and the more conservative camp, and there were the, those who were much more seeking aggiornamento, which is updating, that John the Twenty-Third had asked for. But when John the Twenty-Third spoke of aggiornamento, it's really important for us to remember what he meant. Never did John ever mean, imply, or advocate, and nor did Paul VI, that the teachings of the church were up for renewal, reform, or updating. Mm -hmm. No. But rather, it's the church's life in the world, right? It's concerning the teaching. It, it was not teaching something different, but teaching it in a way that was accessible and, and, and understandable for people, right? That is what they really saw as really important because the church was losing ground, which is quite interesting. When, when you look at some of the nostalgia, and again, a lot of the narrative about the Vatican Council is only, is, it tells only half the truth. Because unfortunately, there are people who are trying to advocate a certain position. You know, the Vatican Council was a mistake, or those who implemented the Vatican Council made a terrible mistake, or why did they have to have in the first place? But, I mean, because so that everybody kind of has like, a, not everyone, many have a position that they're trying to buttress, right? By telling some of the facts. But the truth is, coming into the Second Vatican Council, there was already movements in Europe where observance of the faith was declining and people were turning away from the active, uh, the active practice of the faith. That is not just a 21st century phenomenon. That was a 20th century phenomenon. In part, that was arising because of the attempt of the church, right, particularly Pius XII, to rail against modernism. So there are certain things we accept now that in the 30s and 40s and 50s were really controversial, such as the historical critical method of studying sacred scripture. Now, you and I take that for granted, that there are sources right. and that there's a history mm -hmm. and that there's different forms of truth and that the books are not written all in the same way and that, and that there is scholarly work that helps us to understand what the inspiration is really telling us precisely by using the historical critical method, not as an end in itself, but as a tool. It's a tool. Right? 
But there was a time when that was seen as, uh, I mean, more than avant-garde, it was seen as being contrary, right, to proper understanding of the scripture. So that's one example of what was going on in the background. And so therefore, it was seen as so many other things as modernism that had to be stamped out. So the church's stance was to be opposed to it and to reject it, right? You will see in all along the way, right, um, how the church in this moment in its life had to grapple with some basic questions that it could no longer avoid addressing. So for example, the sources of the faith, the sources of the faith. When the Vatican Council was called, neo-scholasticism was basically the theological structure and framework for everything that was accepted, right, by the by the magisterium. And it is still, in many ways, the preeminent way, but it is not the only way. So therefore, a lot of the presentation of the faith came out of what they call these scholastic manuals, as corollaries, Right, And it was unconvincing to a growing number of individuals, now far larger number, but then a growing number, simply because the fonts of the faith, particularly the scriptures, were not always prevalent. So we had come 400 years prior, sola scriptura, which is what the Protestants had held. We, We reacted, and while the scripture has always been part of the celebration, Right, it's always been part of the faith. Obviously, it's the font, mm-hmm. right? Yes. So it's the it's, it, it. It was it was it, it receded to the background for all the manualists, right? So that was stirring, right? With historical critical method, how do you how do you reclaim all of that? Same thing in liturgy, right? The fact that the liturgy had evolved out of Trent, so that the mass was in Latin, the vast majority of the people did not understand it. The congregation basically prayed with a private prayer in union with the priest in silence. That the priest was offering the sacrifice in a sense for them, so everyone was in the same posture, had evolved, right? Trent basically codified that, had evolved. But going back to the sources, going back to the ancient sources, it was a different picture of the liturgy in the ancient church, where there was a role for the congregation and it was active, and the, there were parts for the people to participate in, the singing of the congregation as well. So again, that began to inform, well, then how, how do we reclaim the tradition of the church in the largest sense of the word? Not just since Trent, but since the Last Supper, right? The same is true for ecumenism. You know, at the time, the division between the Protestant and not uh, between the Catholic and non-Catholic world was a burning issue because there were attempts with the World Council. We spoke about this, the World Council of Churches, to speak about a movement towards unity or at least an understanding and practice that Christians could side by side do the works of charity as they struggle through the questions of doctrine and faith. From the curialist point of view, Right? So we're talking about the organized curia. The, the basic stance was um, every religion that is Christian and non-Catholic was in error to a certain degree, and that unity was to repent from the error and come back to the church. 
right? Without recognizing the fact that there are elements, even if they're imperfect, there are elements, right, in, in all Christian religions of the truth. We believe the fullness of it is certainly in the Catholic faith. But it's not to say that the elements don't exist elsewhere. So it's, it's, a, it's a change of perspective, right? It's not really a change of teaching. It's a change of perspective. So all of this is going in the background at the same time that the first Vatican Council, right, which occurred a, a century before, was theoretically interrupted. Theoretically, it never came to an end. So it talked about the papal office and defined papal infallibility. But on the first Vatican Council's agenda, they were to talk about the role of bishops, and they never got to it because the unifying forces of Italy came through. They finally took over and that was it, right? So the council technically never ended. So part of the agenda of the second Vatican council is actually finished what the first Vatican council didn't have a chance to finish. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> only in the Catholic church do you have stuff like this. I love it. Was it. Only, it was <laughs> a brief pause of a hundred years. <laughs> yeah, that's all right. All right, life went on. It, it, to give the you know, and also just to be faithful too, I think, um, to to what actually happened when it came to scripture, uh, Pius the Twelfth in his encyclical Divino Afflante did give a renewal to Catholic biblical studies, right? Did call for new translations of the Bible, right? So it's not that we were not doing, we were just ignoring it, but the 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 ferment to recapture the power and beauty of the of the word is something that even 50 years after the Vatican Council, we're still trying to figure out how to do that in the life of the church. And it's interesting that Francis had, right, designated one of the earliest Sundays in ordinary time as the Sunday of the Word, precisely to keep challenging people that you can encounter the presence of Christ in a powerful way in scripture, even though, if I may put it this way, the fullest experience of, of the presence of Christ is in the Eucharist. But it doesn't render scripture as, you know, not valuable. It's extraordinarily valuable, right? For that reason. Yeah, the Vatican Council, the first Vatican Council was 1869 to 1870. And it really did two things. It did the theology of the papacy and the theology of faith and reason. But it never got to address the bishops and it never got to address the laity. Mm. So now Vatican II closes Vatican I. So let's talk about uh, these camps. When you read, and I did some homework for this, when you read some of the accounts of what happened, I mean, it was amazing how the council fathers, 2,000 plus strong, vied with each other, and in some cases, pitted against each other and actually became confrontational with each other because of their very deeply held positions that whatever the council did, right, it had to be faithful to the deposit of faith from the apostles. So how do you do a giornamento? How do you do, right, how do you keep the faith intact and authentic and complete, but at the same time, figure out ways to explain it that resonate more for the modern world, right? 
What do you think, my friend? Not an easy task. I'm glad I wasn't there. <laughs> yeah. And of course, they're all human. We're yes. all human. And so egos got in the way, tempers got in the way, and all the rest of it. And that's why the popes, in many ways, intervened. John the Twenty Third intervened. Paul the Sixth intervened. And sometimes he made one group happy. Sometimes he made another group happy. But he was always trying to 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 faithfully hold the teaching of the church. So, for example, I'll give you two examples. Among those who were the more of the open-minded to the ancient sources and the renewalists, right? We call them the aggiornamenti. Two topics that they very much wanted to put on the agenda, all right, in the Vatican Council was priestly celibacy and contraception. Okay? And in both cases, for obvious reasons, one, because this was the age of ferment when it came to artificial contraception, right? And celibacy, even then in Africa, in Latin America, and in South America, there were bishops even then in the 60s who were bemoaning the fact that there were not enough priests for the demands that they faced. And would the church be open to raising this question even theoretically about a married clergy? Now, can you imagine... Right. So we talk about that now. We're talking 50 years ago, more, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 60 years ago. And in both cases, Paul VI intervened and said no to both. That it would not be a conversation in the council. And subsequent to the council's ending, he reaffirmed priestly celibacy. And with the commission that was created to study it, he overruled the findings of the commission Right? to uphold the church's traditional teaching that spoke about only natural family planning, to, f- to follow the rhythms of nature, to be able to be a co-creator of life because God is the creator of all life. And he received a lot of opposition because of that. But he had to discern in the end if this was the proper topic to be discussed. Right? Meanwhile, right, <laughs> I'm not exactly sure how to put this in a delicate way, but if the if the curia um, was creating the opening schema, which they did, and the curia had a very particular theological stance that was somewhat conservative, then the truth of the matter is, um, at the beginning of the council. It, it was being poised in such a way to reaffirm what I'm going to call the more traditional meaning, modernism we oppose, the secular world we oppose, other world religions, and particularly other Christians, you know, you come back to the church, you're welcome to come back to the church. That's the extent of ecumenism. And, you know, reaffirming a view of the priest as the sacramental minister, right? All of these issues, which... And so the early years of the council were the attempt of the council fathers to try to figure out a way where they could have a voice in the schema that were already kind of written out for them, (laughs) right? So you can imagine what that looked like (laughs) behind the scenes. I have no idea, (laughs) right? To have one bishop in the room could be interesting. Can you imagine 2,000 in the room? (laughs) From 87 countries, 
I mean, this was the first council in the history of the church, right, that had lay auditors. Hmm. Paul VI was the first to have women as lay auditors in the council. We talk about the synod on synodality. That came up in the schemas of the Second Vatican Council. This, this idea of having a permanent body of bishops that would help the Pope in the governance of the church. And while Paul VI accepted the idea, he very much also was afraid that this would devolve into uh, almost like a, a legislative body. So he took it off the agenda and then created the synodal office. And we've had 20 some odd synods since because they're advisory to mm -hmm. the Pope and he takes it seriously and he listens, but they don't legislate in their own right. But that was also going on, right? Like, what do you do? How do you have clear? Well, for example, if I were to ask you, Steve, I'm the Bishop of Bridgeport. Where do I get my authority from the Bishop as to be the Bishop of Bridgeport? Does it not come <clears throat> by virtue of your office uh, as a descendant of the apostles? Do you know that you are a Vaticanist, that you are a, a liberal at the Second Vatican Council? Because at the Vatican Council, the schema said that I got my authority is delegated from the Pope, not by virtue of my office, by virtue of Peter. And there was a huge debate, fight, fight, you know, to whom did Christ give the authority of the church? Was it to Peter alone or to the College of Apostles? And of course, in the ancient church, it was clear, it was the college, right? But we evolved a structure that was very monarchical. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't a question of saying the Pope doesn't have absolute universal jurisdiction on the church. Of course he does. But, but are we just, um, sur not surrogates, are we just like ambassadors of the Pope? And where does collegiality fit? In that. that was, we take it for granted now, but in the Vatican Council, it was a live, debated question. Hmm. Right? Like religious freedom. Do actually people have freedom to, to, to become members of another church? You, do, I'm not sure people realize, but prior to the Second Vatican Council in Spain and many Latin American countries, non-Catholic Christians did not have the same rights as Catholic Christians in civil law hmm. because the presumption was they were in error. So error does not give you rights. Wow. <laughs> Imagine. That's the church that came into the Second Vatican Council. Now, we take it for granted, and the interesting thing is, in the discussion that occurred, it, 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 the basis, if you read the Declaration of Religious Freedom, it's based on conscience. So the Council Fathers discerned that it, 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 religious freedom is based on your conscience and the demands to follow your conscience. It's, it's not a question of a comparison of errors or not, or who is in error and who may not be. It's a question of the dictates of your conscience that you have to follow. But we take that for granted. But before this, 
it was a very different schema that came out of the manualists. Hmm. Interesting, yeah. no? Yeah. When John the Twenty Third opened the council, he said he had three visions. I'm I'm using the mm -hmm. word vision. He had three hopes. The first was for a new Pentecost for the church, a renewal to adapt the practices of the church to the modern world, not its teaching, its practices, and to restate her beliefs in such a way that people could understand in the modern world what that meant. Okay. For the wider Christian family, his vision was a unified Christianity. And then for the world, that the church would be a leaven and protagonist for change, that the whole human family to live together in peace, pachim and teras, right? That's his vision. And we as the bride of Christ and the, and the first seeds of the kingdom of God is to, that's our focus. I mean, talk about a, a, an expansive mm -hmm. view. Yeah. So now you may say, okay, Bishop, it's an expansive view. I mean, you could say whatever you want, but I mean, how did you do it? Well, Gaudium et Spes, Gaudium et Spes, the pastoral constitution of the church had that expansive vision for the first time in the history of the church, for the first time, spoke about the church in relation to the whole world, right, as a teaching of, of the magisterium and how we're leavened against war as in service of peace and the equalities of people and solidarity among all people. All the social principles that formed Catholic social teaching were reaffirmed in that document. And that was a major source of controversy because there were a lot of the bishops beginning saying, but what are we talking about this for? Is, is that the role of the magisterium to talk about? And again, we, we kind of take it for granted now, but for them, it was real. That's why they it took all those years and all those sessions and all those votes. And it took a long time for the bishops to discern what the spirit was right. asking. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. Just as a summary, I'm not sure if we have to go to a break, but just for the summary, if I would urge those who are listening to read the documents of the Second Vatican Council. Read them. For many reasons. Because we were asked by Paul VI that they be received by the faithful and the clergy with filial obedience and devotion but you can't, you can't accept. You can't accept that which you and I have not really spent time reading and mm -hmm. studying. So there are four constitutions, nine decrees, and three declarations. And of the constitutions, two of them are dogmatic: the dogmatic constitution of the Church and the dogmatic constitution of Revelation, which took a heck of a long time to get approved by the Council Fathers—three years precisely because of the font. Because prior to the Vatican Council, the question was, can you have, can you have uh, doctrinal truth in tradition that is not contained in scripture? Right. And the answer of, of the, the, the prevailing answer was yes. And the conclusion coming out of the divine, the, the dogmatic constitution of revelation is to say scripture and tradition are fonts that together in a unified way speak of the divine revelation of the incarnation 
and reveal the definitive revelation that is in him. So it's almost like saying, it's like the note and the echo in the room. How do you separate the two? You really can't. Mm. So they have to be seen in a unified way. That, again, is something that we've been developing ever since that slightly kind of put the, the, the division, it was almost like a false division, put it together to see it in a much more comprehensive way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So let's go to a break. But um, even if you can't read all of those documents, Excellency, is it enough to start okay, with the four? So those are de- the mm-hmm. church. Right, so Lumen Gentium, Gaudium et Spes, the Constitution on the Liturgy, and the Church in the Modern World. So those would be the four: Dei Verbum, Lumen Gentium, Sacrosanctum Concilium, and Gaudium et Spes. Those four, I think, are really worth reading. Okay, so uh, we'll talk more about this when we come back from the break. This is Let Me Be Frank on the Veritas Catholic Network. If you're concerned about your end-of-life plans, searching for a Catholic cemetery, or have loved ones who are buried in one of the 14 Catholic cemeteries throughout Fairfield County, now might be a good time to begin planning for yourself or for other family members. Call one of our family advisors at 203-742-1450 and select option 5 to leave a message or visit www.ctcemeteries.org. Many people don't realize that they can be buried with their deceased loved ones, even if all of the family's in-ground plots have been taken. The Diocese of Bridgeport Catholic Cemeteries provides in-ground burials, as well as columbarium and mausoleum options. This makes it possible to unite your family together in the same cemetery, and it's an opportunity to build a bridge for your family back to the church. Talking about this issue is not easy, but pre-need planning makes your wishes clear, reduces cost, and helps your family avoid difficult decisions at a time of grief and loss. You can start your planning now by contacting one of our family advisors at 203-742-1450 and select option 5 or visit www.ctcemeteries.org. We can guide you through the options, regulations, and considerations to help you make the best decisions for your family. The number is 203-742-1450 and select option 5 or visit www.ctcemeteries.org. Okay, welcome back. So let me be frank on the Veritas Catholic Network. All right, Excellency, we are really in the meat and uh, there's more meat. Well, yeah. Oh, yeah, there is. Actually, I misspoke before. It's not 2,200. It was 2,900. I just saw a note on the side of my paper here. It was 2,900 bishops, and 500 bishops could not come because of age, infirmity, or communist governments wouldn't let them travel. Think about that. Isn't that amazing? Right? At the beginning of this whole process, there were 70 schema, 70 drawn up by the Curia. And that was eventually evolved over all those years into the 12 documents that we spoke of. I'm not sorry, of the the four, nine, and three, right? The 16 documents that were, were created. Just as an aside for people to realize, a schema w- would be approved in general. It would go to the commission for wording. It would come back to the bishops. When there was a final text, 
right? Then amendments could be made. They had to be considered. Then it came back. And then you would vote on approving the text. But then you'd have to go through each chapter. Then you'd have to go through each paragraph. And every single one of these was voted on. Could you imagine? (laughs) (laughs) Right. And And could you imagine all of the controversy and just the wording? Right. And and Mm 2,900 bishops, you probably had... 3,000 different opinions. <laughs> to give you a comparison, in Vatican I, that was never finished, there were only 737 bishops. Wow. Now, if there were a council now, there would be 6,000 bishops. Wow. Well, they would meet. <laughs> We'd have to meet in an outdoor stadium if they were. <laughs> you know, right? I mean, why don't you do that? Now, okay. Um, the interesting thing is, when you look at the original schema, they were not all um, created by curialists, if I may say that, seeking a council that would have made, in effect, no significant difference to the trajectory of the church, right? Um, I was told, right, that when John the Twenty-Third called the council, a few months after he was elected, there was absolute genuine shock on the part of the Curia. Shock. And some called it a divine spring, that huh. there finally would be an opportunity to talk about some of these issues. Right? But there's something interesting that I think is just on a human level. In an age where most people didn't travel much, nor was there communication like we have now. How would a bishop from New Zealand know his brother bishop in Pakistan? Hmm. He wouldn't. Right. So when you bring 2,000 how many bishops together, they wouldn't even know each other from Adam and Eve. Yeah. So how could they even start deliberations? Right? It's just a practical question, which I had never thought of. Yeah, the logistics, yeah. Yeah, and and so and so, um, part of what happened at the beginning was the idea of the national bishops gathering together, right? Just to get to know each other. I forget how many days they did. Was first step to say, well, before we actually deliberate as successors of the apostles, we should know each other's names at least <laughs> from the from 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 our own countries, right. I mean, you know. And therefore, I think, how is that different from, in a sense, what COVID has created? Now, granted, we could catch up very quickly, but in the midst of COVID, bishops were being appointed, cardinals were being appointed. And there's an ancient practice, right, in the College of Cardinals, that they would come together in consistories in Rome simply because mm-hmm. they, they, can, they need to know each other. Yes. Because if you go into a conclave, how are you going to... How are you going to have a, a, a common inspiration, a, a practice of inspiration, if you don't know who each other are, maybe? Right. Yep. Right? So interesting is there were Pariti, Pariti, which were theological experts, right? Yes. Who were appointed. But there were two types. Did you know this, Steve? I didn't know this until I... I, I didn't know there were two types, No. Two types. We're going to call them, in my term, official and private. So the official ones were to the council, 
right, at service. The private ones, I didn't realize every bishop could bring his own paritas. You could bring your own expert to the council. That is how Father uh, Joseph Ratzinger and Father Karl Rana and Father Hans Kuhn came to the council. They were the personal paritas of their bishops. And an interesting thing is in one of the most um, angry exchanges in the Vatican Council was between what we call now the prefect of the Holy Office, the Tocastri for the Doctrine of the Faith, right? And one of the archbishops from Germany. And the archbishop stood up and called for the reform of the Holy Office. And Octaviani, who was the head of it, got up and was wickedly offended and hot under the collar in response. Do you know who wrote that? <laughs> Joseph Ratzinger. Really? Mm-hmm. <laughs> how, yeah, how funny. And that he became the head of exactly. what Exactly. <laughs> now, does God have a sense of humor or what? <laughs> but it also shows the keenness of Pope Emeritus Benedict's mind. Yeah. Right? That he wasn't a rigorous ideologue. Yeah. He was responding faithful to the church's tradition, to the needs of the church, but he wasn't blind to the after effects as well and how it also needs to be be adapted to f times as they change because now it's essentially different than when it was in 1962. The world is extremely different, is it not? And he was open to that change, which is one of the great remarkable characteristics of him. Mm -hmm. But I just thought that was a riot. Mm -hmm. just, it's, it may, again, again, many people act out of their percept, their presumption. But when you read history, you see it's much more nuanced. Yes. And the divisions that we want to create are much more nuanced. And there's a healthy thing to be talked about right, for us to do that. So it seemed that at the end of the first session, the majority of the council participants, the council fathers, had through lots of, which we can't get into, but lots of different votes and man maneuvers had, f had saved the council from simply being a rote six, seven week event where the curia wrote all the documents and the bishops had no say. Regardless of what the outcome was, the bishops wanted the say, all right, and what was happening. So, when John the Twenty Third died and Paul the Sixth was elected, which was in 1963, I could imagine, and this is just a personal note on my part, to become the Pope. Period. You think about like ten thousand tons of bricks landing on your shoulder. Could you imagine what Paul the Sixth thought hmm. when he's going in the middle of a council? <laughs> that he did not call, and then to, to be able to manage all of these factions. Imagine when the Pope died. If you thought to yourself, John made a terrible mistake. Oh, yeah. That, or if you said, no, this is our only opportunity to do this and dialogue or at least interact with the world before the church gets literally becomes irrelevant to the majority of humanity. Could you imagine coming into that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have to tell you, I, I, my doing a little bit of this homework and just 
my um, admiration for Paul VI just grew tremendously because this could have devolved into a just a disaster. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But it didn't. Right. So he gave, uh, Paul VI was famous for very long addresses. Very long. Very long. Hour plus. Okay. So anybody complaining about my homilies at 12 minutes, you should read those talks. Okay. (laughs) And his opening address, he made some interesting points. The first was that the church must be present in the world. Go out and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father. It is not an option. That's our, that is part of our constitutive character. We cannot build a wall to the world. Right. On the other hand, we go into the world, not as a member of the world, but as a leaven into the world. Mm-hmm. So that's the first point. Second is, he said, aggiornamento can continue and must continue but not breaking tradition, right? We have to eliminate what's defective, right? But this is not innovation, right? And the other two pieces to the puzzle are that we have to work for the unity of Christians, right? And when we go into the world, we are there to not conquer, but serve, mm-hmm. right? One of the most dramatic moments at the end of the council when it was coming to a close, was the mutual lifting of the excommunications that existed between the Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church. People saw that as a huge sign of hope that brothers and sisters in the Christian world could work towards a more fraternal, dialogical relationship, even if we don't always agree theologically. Again, we take that for granted. The Holy Father was just in South Sudan with the Archbishop of Canterbury and the presiding minister of the Scottish Presbyterian Church. I mean, we take it for granted. Yeah. But for this was an innovation. The other interesting thing is, I forget which of the sessions, but it may have been at the very beginning of the council, but there was an ecumenical prayer service at the Second Vatican Council. So when we talk about an ecumenical prayer service to open the synod on synodality, and people say there's an innovation and Pope Francis is correct. No, he didn't. No, he didn't. <laughs> it's been it this precedent long ago, but people don't know it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right? Fascinating. So um, I mentioned some of the things about the struggles of all the documents, Dei Verbum and Lumen Gentium, in my mind, are critical because they're dogmatic constitutions. They're not a pastoral constitution. They're dogmatic constitutions, right? So the, the constitutional liturgy. But with Lumen Gentium, there is some real insights in Lumen Gentium that, if their time permits, we should kind of like throw out there just to kind of seed the conversation. But you look like you have a question, and I'm talking yeah. too much, Steve. Speak. No, no, let's let's. Uh, let's dive into Lumen Gentium, but first, if you could just um, explain in uh, just a sentence or two, what's the difference between a dogmatic constitution and a pastoral constitution? Why is the dogmatic so much weightier? Because it speaks of dogma, right? So basically what you're doing is you're teaching all right, about the nature of the church, which again, as I said before, um, 
the first Vatican Council wanted to address. See, what's interesting? Okay, so in in the the ecumenical councils, there's 21 of them if you count the Council of Jerusalem in Scripture. 21 of them. Most of them talked about, all right, until the 16th century, most of them talked about the person of Jesus Christ. Right? It's interesting that the Vatican Council, the second Vatican Council, finishing the first in some sense, it's really about the church. Hmm. Because our understanding of who Christ is, is basically settled, right? A person may not believe it, may not accept it, but that's not the issue. It's settled more or less what it is, right? But for the church, it still begins to, it's so, so that's why in my sense, Lumen Gentium and De Verbum are the two documents that are seminal, and I think Lumen Gentium is, for our purposes, is the one that I think still r- resonates. Because question of synodality, collegiality, uh, communion, relation with other Christian religions, all that stuff, r- r- it, it's rooted in what you understand the church to be, who we are, right? Yes. In Jesus Christ. Yes. Right? So it, the very question of communion, communion in the church is important because it was emphasized in Lumen Gentium, right? Um, Christians can have an imperfect communion with the Catholic Church who are not Catholic, which is a, a, a beautiful theological way of understanding the root unity we have in our common baptism, which again, we take for granted. Same thing with the hierarchical structure of the church which I talked about before. So while the Pope has ultimate authority, but we have a collegiality in the college without which the church would not be the church. In the, in the earliest schema of Lumen Gentium, the fact that the Aconite would be restored as a permanent order surprisingly received very little opposition. What did receive opposition was the possibility, all right, that married men could remarry after they were ordained deacons. So there was no, there was very little opposition to restoration of the diaconate, surprisingly very little opposition that married men would be deacons because they were not going on to priesthood. Mm -hmm. But for them to remarry afterwards, there was opposition to that, which I think is Hmm. quite interesting. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. Um, the schema of Lumen Gentium, I, I've said this before, the spiritual dynamite of Lumen Gentium is the universal call of holiness. It comes from baptism. And the council reaffirmed that the call to holiness is not delegated to the lady. It's essential to the vocational call of baptism. It's not restricted solely to religious and clerics. And quite frankly, because of the universal call of 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 holiness, that the work of Christians in the world does not always have to be under the direct supervision and control of clerics or the clerical world, precisely because baptism gives the mandate. In a sense, when we talk about the one, we're trying to recapture what the Vatican Council speaks of with the 60 years past because the, we speak about having multiple encounters with Jesus every day that you, you what that is is developing a holiness of life <laughs> where Christ 
is your in your mind, in your heart, in your will, right? More and more each day. Well, that's what the Vatican Council taught in Lumen Gentium. Again, we take it for granted. And people argued about that. Wow. Right? Yeah. The whole idea of the people of God. You know, again, prior to the Vatican Council, in some of the manuals, the lady was spoken of as subjects of the church. What subjects to the church? I understand the, the, the theology behind it. We're all subject to the authority of Christ. But but we're also members of the mystical body of Christ. Yes. Each with their own gifts and talents. Because quite frankly, if all the ladies stopped getting married, there would be no clergy in 100 years or 50 years. <laughs> right? <laughs> There's a mutual relationship between all the pieces. <laughs> right? Or is it me? <laughs> Again, we talk about this as, you know, kind of, but it's, I only say all of this because it should give sober understanding to the controversy we're living in now, right? Because we should learn from those upon whose shoulders we stand. And in the controversies of the Vatican Council and its deliberations, when people were honestly, passionately, and zealously trying to defend what they believed was the better and more authentic way to express the truth. In the end, they gave way right, to the discernment and power of the Holy Spirit, many times through the intervention of the Holy Father. And I think it's kind of sad nowadays where there isn't that willingness in those who are equally passionate and zealous about how they believe the, the truth to be authentically taught. There isn't that willingness to do the same now, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And I just wondered to myself, if social media existed in the Second Vatican Council, what would it have looked like? Hmm? Yeah. You have questions, no? Or any reactions? Um, <clears throat> no, I you know you're you're right that uh, a lot of things that we take for granted today, and you could be you know um, traditional conservative liberal whatever you know dumb labels you want to put on it, but a lot of the things that we take for granted as teachings of the church they do come from just as you're saying. Uh, from Vatican II, like the Eucharist is the source and summit of Christian life. That's the Constitution. Yes. Active, full, conscious participation of the laity. However you understand what that may be, whether it's active in in vocal expression, active in participation in silence, but but the lady, but the fundamental insight that everyone is has a role to play entering into the mystery of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, yeah, and to receive His body, blood, soul, and divinity. That's a seminal point, right? I, I guess so. Um, you know, it would be good to there is uh, there is modern day controversy mm-hmm. over the council maybe you could i mean i know it would take like 10 episodes to really dive into it but can you kind of just uh address it you know yeah i think 
many may be listening and saying, okay, Bishop, I understand all that. But my difficulty is not the documents, but the implementation of the documents. All right, so this is the, the, this is the point I want people to understand, is that the documents themselves, almost all of them are the product of the direct intervention of Peter, who continues his direct intervention in their uh, authentic implementation. So to put it another way, uh, John the 23rd and Paul the 6th intervened many times in the creation of schema or in the elimination of topics or the addition of topics as well, because he can, that's his right, right, as Peter in our midst. So I wonder to myself, if you're willing to accept that intervention in the creation of the documents, why would we then doubt in the implementation? Because the difficulty is not the implementation from Rome, but the implementation in the local level, in the parishes and, you know, in different parts of the world. Mm -hmm. And that could be a legitimate area of, of disappointment because some people took it far too to the extreme because they themselves weren't being faithful to what what the church was asking of them. But if there was a failure, it was in the local level of which Rome would not have direct control, but not on the universal level from the from Paul VI on, because it was the same intervention that helped create the documents in the first place. Yes, yes. Yeah, it's important. I mean, and a good place, like you said, Excellency, you start by reading the documents. Don't just kind of swing your fists at this council that, I mean, that you didn't really read the stuff for. <laughs> All right, let's 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 take one final break and we'll come back with a listener question. This is Let Me Be Frank on the Veritas Catholic Network. Be right back. Hey, it's Matt from Restless on the Veritas Catholic Radio Network. Each week on Restless, we young adults restlessly seek the face of Christ in today's crazy and mixed up world. Join us each Friday at noon on 1350 AM, 103.9 FM, the Veritas app, or wherever you get your shows. Hope to see you there. Welcome back to Let Me Be Frank with Bishop Frank Caggiano. Our Excellency, uh, here is this week's question. It says, um, I'd like to ask Bishop Caggiano about priests who are defrocked. Do they still have the power to change bread and wine into the Eucharist? Can they still forgive sins? Bottom line is, once a priest, always a priest, right? In the sense that what you do is you lose the faculty and you lose the ability to, or the, the permission to do it. In extraordinary circumstances, even laicized priests can hear confession in, upon danger of death, imminent death. But it would not be a, a illicit celebration of the Eucharist because there would be no faculty, right? But a priest never un becomes a priest. That's really what it comes down to. Mm -hmm. Yes. It's a fundamental change in your Correct. soul and your personhood. Correct. So uh, still valid, just Correct. not listed. Okay. Great. If you have a question for Bishop Frank, send it in to us on social media, or you can email questions at veritascatholic.com. Bishop Frank Caggiano is on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. So is Veritas Catholic Network. And we'd like to thank our sponsor, Foundations in Faith. It's a grant from the St. Therese Fund for Evangelization, 
that makes it possible for us to bring Let Me Be Frank to you. Foundations and Faith is committed to supporting and transforming pastoral ministries in the Diocese of Bridgeport, and you can learn more about their outstanding work at foundationsinfaith.org. And Excellency, thank you very much for today. Before we go, may I ask for your blessing? May the Holy Spirit of God bless you and grant you every grace and good gift as we continue to strive to be his faithful disciples in the world. May the blessing of Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit come upon you and remain with you forever. Amen. See you next week, my friend. Amen. All the best. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thanks.